Hey everyone, welcome to episode 2 of what some call lies and reruns. I'm Mike Lawson and I used to have a weekly storytelling podcast and now I'm sharing those stories with y'all here on the Afterthought Media feed. On this episode, I'm sharing story number 17, Folklore and Friendship, followed by story number 18, So Why Don't You Kill Me? Story number 17, starting there, Folklore and Friendship. This was originally published on Tuesday, March 13th, 2012. Um, I don't remember too much about it other than it's about um, a job I used to have. So uh, let's see. Here we go. Episode 17, Folklore and Friendship. The building blocks of a successful friendship are trust, mutual interest, and not laughing at one another's beliefs. Can I do it? Am I capable of respecting an opinion that's so hokey and outlandish, all in the name of company? You'll find out today. Hi, my name's Mike Lawson, and I tell what some would call lies. Um, I really love telling stories. I love, I love, I love telling, telling stories. stories. What some would call lies. 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 Vomit. You lying son of a gun. Kind of creepy son of a bitch. Son of a, son of a, son of a, son of a bitch. He said, she said, I said, what the hell? Liar, liar, pants on fire. I love your dress. And I'm not making this up. You are a goddamn liar. I'm back, bitches. <laughs> I love telling stories. This podcast is in no particular order, a collection of stories from my life that I retell as accurately as I see fit. I quit what I would call a job with potential kind of on a whim in late 2007 so I could pack up and move to Phoenix and be closer to family. This job with potential was the director of staff development for a nonprofit organization in Garden Grove, California. I really loved that job. I got to interview potential employees all day. So you went to Pacifica High School, huh? Home of the Mariners. Or you graduated from Loera? Hmm, the Fighting Saxons. It was kind of a thing that I did. Try to memorize all of the local school mascots. I really love talking to people and getting their stories, so this job was actually quite perfect for my personality. Aside from hiring, I also did all of the new hire orientations and ongoing staff training. And I enjoyed just about every person that I worked with. We were a strange group of people but we worked really well together. There was the closeted gay guy that pretended to love Jesus more than cock. There was a Samoan cult. There was a short Hispanic girl that was kidnapped by her father when she was a child, and she made international news because it was one of the first cases that touched on parental rights. There was a guy that was disgustingly obsessed with USC paraphernalia, even though he never went to USC. And there was a half-deaf Vietnamese girl that you could talk shit about just as long as you stood on her left. Almost immediately after moving to Phoenix, I started to regret the decision. For starters, even though my new job in Phoenix was for an organization that I really respected, I didn't enjoy the work that I was doing. I was hired by a pretty well-known labor union to be a union organizer focusing on helping state employees, primarily in the healthcare sector, to organize. It was like a high-pressure sales job without the money. As part of my second week of training, I was paired up with a guy named Rico. 
Rico was kind of hot. Well, he would have been hot if I was able to bring him to one of those self-serve car wash places and give him a really good power wash. He was a hippie, and although I have absolutely no proof of this, I had a strong feeling that he didn't regularly wash his underclothes. My supervisor, Matthew, a thin, tall, blonde, 25-year-old from Boston that was just in Arizona on a short contract, told me that I was going to be Rico's shadow. Wherever he goes, you go, Matthew said. If he takes a piss, you go with him, he said, slapping Rico on the back and making me blush. On my first day as Rico's shadow, I learned that Rico had a full schedule of appointments with different employees at the VA hospital down the street. Rico said that I should just come and hang out, watch him work. On the first day, I wouldn't be participating at all. At the hospital, I watched him speak to nurses, pharmacists, and housekeeping professionals. Rico spoke with convincing passion about the need for employees to stand together to amplify their voice in the discussion regarding decisions that affect their jobs and the patients they're caring for. His enthusiasm was so persuasive that at one point I thought about quickly getting a nursing degree just so I could sign a pledge card and make Rico happy. He played the loving son when he was talking to the motherly nurse that was concerned about mandatory overtime that eventually affected the quality of patient care. He played the car aficionado that talked shop with the elderly maintenance man before convincing him that a union could help him put long-promised benefit plan upgrades into writing. And he played the flirtatious Rico Suave when he was talking to the medical receptionist that had a half-washed-off black X in her hand from the previous night at the club as he told her about how the union could help her participate in the future of the hospital. He was really good at this. Around 2 o'clock, he said that we had about an hour until our next meeting and we should go grab something to eat. What do you want to eat? He asked me. My treat. <sighs> Holy shit. Someone that's politically passionate and buys me food? Pinch me. I suggested a sandwich place just a few blocks south. I got a better idea, he said. And he drove me to the Safeway grocery store on 7th Street and McDowell. As we pulled in, he told me that they make pretty good sandwiches at the deli. And, he noted, the employees here are also unionized. It was at this point that I started to worry that he might realize that the socks I was wearing were purchased at Walmart. I ordered a delicious California club sandwich, which was just a regular club sandwich with avocado on it. And Rico ordered an all-veggie sandwich because he was a vegetarian. It was like ham and cheese with no ham. Stupid. Rico sat at the picnic table outside with his back against the wall and his feet stretched out on the bench. Tell me about Mike Lawson, Rico said, as he looked into my eyes and acted genuinely interested in learning about me. This was exactly why he was good at his job. At this point, I would have told him anything. Stories of my past, wishes of my future, secret ingredients in all of my family's recipes, MSG. After explaining to him what brought me to Arizona, I asked him about his past. What brought you here? Same as you, man. Rico told me that after graduating from Cal State Berkeley, he traveled for a couple of years volunteering for different political campaigns before settling in Phoenix to be close to his family. Our stories had a lot of similarities. Out-of-state friends that we left behind to build a life in the Valley of the Sun, struggling to find a social life that was as exciting as our previous one, loving our family's ton but adjusting to being so close to them again. I thought that I had just found my first Arizona friend. And then 
completely out of the blue, he said, Do you believe in Bigfoot? I laughed. Our conversation, which was primarily about careers, Arizona politics, and the social struggles that accompany relocation, just switched to a conversation about a bipedal humanoid that lives in folklore. <laughs> After I laughed at his question, I realized that he was genuinely interested in my opinion on Sasquatch. <laughs> you know, Rico, I haven't given it a lot of thought, I said. To be honest, all I really know about Bigfoot is the things that I've learned in the movie Harry and the Hendersons. On the drive back to the hospital, Rico told me about a 2007 sighting of a supposed Sasquatch that a hunter captured on camera using a tree-mounted camera in a forest out in Pennsylvania. I'm going to send you the link, Rico said. Great. It's kind of like when you buy laundry detergent and it comes with a free sample of liquid fabric softener. A really nice gesture, but it's only useful if you use liquid laundry detergent. There's a lot of skeptics, Mike, he said, perhaps referencing the laugh that I couldn't help control after he brought up the topic, or the smile that I couldn't seem to wipe from my face. But let me tell you, if you really look into it, there's a lot of evidence pointing towards blah, 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 blah. I'd like to recreate the conversation for you guys, but to be honest, I started tuning the guy out. He was really good at selling me on the idea of collective bargaining for workers' rights, but not so much on the existence of Bigfoot. Have you heard that? He asked me, and he was looking at me. We were parked in the VA parking lot, and I had no idea what his question was about. I had successfully zoned out pretty much everything he was saying. Um, heard of what? I asked. He looked annoyed. Never mind, he said. Let's go. For the rest of the afternoon, I watched him dance the complicated labor union organizer tango. As scheduled, the hospital employees would meet us on their breaks, and Rico would grab their attention and hold them in a very close embrace. One, two, three, and four. One, two, three. At first, taking small steps in a syncopated rhythm. One, two, three, and four. One, two, three. Pinpointing what they were passionate about. One, two, three, and four. One, two, three. And then describing in great detail how collective bargaining and joining a union could help them get what they wanted. At the end of the day, Rico said he was going to go back to the office and try to schedule a few more meetings for the following day. Why don't you head home, he said. I'll see you in the morning. On the drive home, I kind of kicked myself for the whole Bigfoot conversation. Here I was, desperate to make friends, finally finding someone that I thought was pretty cool, and I fucked it up by laughing at something he was passionate about. And really, as an atheist, how was this any different than my Christian friends? It was actually a little more reasonable. Rico wasn't worshipping Sasquatch or giving 15% of his income to a building that claimed to have a direct line to a Bigfoot in the sky, so I really shouldn't hold this against him. I was determined to start fresh the next day, open-minded. I wasn't going to bring Bigfoot up, but I wasn't going to giggle at the topic either. Really, I respected Rico. I thought he was a smart guy, so if he wanted to talk about Bigfoot, I guess I was willing to listen to what he had to say without openly mocking him. I think that the night's rest did Rico some good too. He showed up that morning with two cups of coffee from La Grande Orange, an independently owned restaurant that he passed on his way into the office. One for me and one for my shadow, he said as he gave me the still warm cup of coffee. La Grande Orange, he told me, French pressed their coffee and they used some special beans that were roasted in Oakland, California. In my opinion, 
dressing someone's coffee is highly personal. I would never assume that you like sugar and cream in your coffee, and I would never assume that you didn't. I think the proper etiquette in this situation is to bring sugar, to bring some artificial sweetener options and cream, and let the drinker decide what he or she would like to add to their cup of joe. But remember, fresh start, respect, open-minded, Bigfoot is awesome, whatever. Thanks, Rico. This is great, I said as I drank a sweet cup of coffee that required an unplanned insulin injection to cover. Rico had planned a pretty full day for us, and we didn't have a lot of time to chit-chat. But we did have a little time for small talk at lunch. He took me to a place called That's a Wrap, which is pretty tasty, locally owned, and specializes in, I'm sure it's no shock, wraps. While we were waiting for our food, Rico told me that a group of his friends were going to the Arizona State Fair that weekend to see Mary J. Blige. Would I like to come? Hell yeah, I'd like to come. And I was pleased that the roadblock on our road to friendship had been cleared. Rico then told me the backstory on one of the nurses we were going to meet right after lunch. She called me, he said, pointing out her enthusiasm. I think she'd be a really good union rep, but let's decide that after we meet her. I felt good about the way things were going. This restaurant, that's a wrap, is actually really small, so we decided to get our food and go eat in the parking lot of the VA hospital. The two of us were incredibly hungry because we both inhaled our food, taking very little time to actually chew. I had a buffalo chicken sort of wrap with hot wing sauce in it, so good, and Rico had some vegetable wrap sort of thing. After eating, he reclined his seat and pointed at the clock. We still had 15 minutes. Rico offered me an Altoid, which are not sugar-free, by the way, but I still ate it in the name of building friendship. I'd eat anything for Rico. So, Mike, he said, what do you think of UFOs? Oh, Rico. <laughs> Up next is story number 18, So Why Don't You Kill Me? This is about middle school, I remember. That's kind of all I really remember um, in the Beck song, Loser. Um, I originally published this on Tuesday, March 20th of 2012. Here is the story. time of chimpanzees, I was a monkey. So begins the 1993 grunge hit, Loser, by Beck. I was 12 and in the 7th grade at Dale Junior High School in Anaheim, California. And despite what I would have told you at the time, I would have done anything to fit in. In 1993, the latest trend was this grunge phase. Smelling like teen spirit. Seattle Sound. It's kind of a funny, contrasting thing, isn't it? Adopting the style and quoting the angst-filled lyrics about social alienation and nonconformity, all in an attempt to fit in. My sister, who's four years older than I am, ditched the flashy neon colors of the 80s and took up a thrift store look that included a stolen flannel shirt from my dad's closet. It was thin, blue, and white. Julie wore that flannel shirt until the cuffs on the sleeves started to tatter. Eventually, I stole the stolen shirt and started wearing it to school, my own piece of grunge style. 
I also lost the well-groomed hair of my youth and started sporting a messy, unwashed look. It takes a lot of effort to look apathetic. Cut it. My seventh grade English teacher was a man named Mr. Lewis. He was young for a teacher, late twenties, and every day he wore a tucked-in colored polo shirt, khaki shorts just above his knee, a braided leather belt, and running sneakers every single day, regardless of the weather. His polo shirts were all warm colors, no blues or greens, but lots of reds, maroon, pink, mustard. Mr. Lewis was kind of a hard ass. In an underperforming school where it was considered an accomplishment for some students to just show up, Mr. Lewis was relentless about assignments and grades. There was no special treatment or second chances with him. On one hand, I feared Mr. Lewis. I was generally well liked by all of my elementary school teachers, but in junior high, in Mr. Lewis's class, he had to look down at his seating chart just to remember my name. If he didn't know who I was. How was he gonna fall in love with the charming little Lawson boy? But on the other hand, I respected the guy. I was watching all of my other teachers bend over and try to accommodate my classmates that couldn't even be motivated to bring their textbooks to class. Yet Mr. Lewis's philosophy rewarded kids for being on point. Kids like me succeeded, and the kids that couldn't get it together failed. Unlike many of my other teachers, he literally failed students that didn't do the work. Back then, I was spending a lot of time with my friend Bobby Lafave, and nothing against Bobby, but we were really just friends of convenience. We didn't have a lot in common and never saw one another outside of school. But in an environment like a junior high, where eating lunch alone is deadly, Bobby and I clung to one another like magnets. To the Beck song "Loser" are nonsensical. Don't believe everything you breathe. You get a parking violation and a maggot on your sleeve. This song quickly became one of my favorite songs. Like my friendship with Bobby, I didn't love the song because of anything poignant or meaningful. I simply grasped onto it because I felt every other kid was holding on to some sort of popular music. This was mine, a way of fitting in. Now, when I listen to the song, I realize that the surrealistic lyrics and the "I'm a loser, baby" sentiment are kind of a mockery of Generation X's slacker culture, a parody, sardonic defiance. But when I was 12, I didn't understand any of that. All I understood at the time was that "soy un perdedor," I'm a loser, baby. 
On a Wednesday afternoon in Mr. Lewis's class, we were doing a group project. Mr. Lewis was walking around the classroom watching the group's work. Bobby and I were partners, and as I started flipping through magazines looking for pictures to cut out and collage for the assignment, Bobby went to the front of the class to pick up construction paper and scissors. When he got back to our desks, which were pushed together, he had the paper but not the scissors. Ah, he said, I forgot the scissors, as he turned around to head back. What a loser, I said. Thanks to Beck, the term loser had seeped its way into the Dale Junior High vernacular and was pretty commonly used as a put-down. I'd like to speak with you after class. Mr. Lewis, who was standing directly behind me, had heard me call Bobby a loser, and he had a look of disappointment on his face. For the rest of the period, I was nervous and anxious. I wasn't the type of kid that had to be spoken to after class. A few months prior, I received a detention for forgetting my P.E. clothes, which at the time I blamed entirely on my mother. And on the walk home from school that day, I cried. As the period came to a close, as we were cleaning up, I contemplated just packing up my things and running from the class as soon as the bell rang. If I got caught, I could always just say I forgot that he wanted to talk to me. But again, I wasn't that kind of kid. I waited for everyone to clear out, and then I walked to Mr. Lewis's desk, staring at my shoes. The language that I heard you use is not appropriate in my classroom, Mr. Lewis said. Putting other people down is not something I will tolerate, even if it's a joke. No matter your intentions, your message can do unintended damage. The lesson that he was trying to teach me was that no matter the intentions of the speaker, the message can do unintended damage. The lesson he wanted to teach me was that words can hurt. Look at the shirt you're wearing, he said, referring to the flannel that was once my dad's and then once my sister's and now mine. The one piece of clothing that I wore almost daily because I had felt like it had made me fit in. It wasn't just a shirt. It was a symbol of cool. This thing is torn to pieces, he said, pointing to the ratty cuffs. I don't think you should be calling anyone a loser. Maybe I didn't understand the message of that Beck song, and perhaps I was misinterpreting what Mr. Lewis had just said to me. But after that day, I never wore that flannel shirt again. No matter the intention of the speaker, the message can do unintended damage. Lesson learned. Done. Two more stories shared. Thanks for sticking around and listening. Um, Come back and join me on the next episode as well. Um, I'm going to be sharing with you two stories. One of them is called Remember, and I interview a friend of mine named Lauren. Um, And then I'm also sharing a story called Melody, Rhythm, and Sentimental Value. And I don't remember what that story is about, so it's going to be a surprise for both of us. Um, All right, well, I'll see you on the next episode, guys. Bye-bye. I like to eat pizza.